Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Reluctant Psalm Podcast with Chris. I'm Chris, in case anybody hasn't been listening up until this point, and uh, I am a psalm. Um, I'm sometimes reluctant, but I'm not always reluctant. But, you know, that's a little bit behind the name. So I uh, wanted to take some time and welcome everybody to uh, May 10th, 2020. I have no idea what day of the week it is because obviously we're all quarantined. Well, not all of us. Some states are back back up and running and uh, some areas of California are back up and running as well. Uh, but here in San Francisco Bay Area, we are on shelter in place until May 31st. So a uh, continuation of what took place, I believe it was... Uh, March uh, 16th is when San Francisco started the shelter-in-place that was supposed to last for about three weeks, and um, now we'll be seeing it through until the beginning of June. Uh, Hopefully, uh, June 1st, we're back up and running. Obviously, there will be plenty of repercussions throughout the restaurant industry for quite a long time. Um, Many places are considering running at 25% occupancy, which could be very detrimental if the business isn't already participating in the ability of uh, selling foods to go. Um, Operating at 25% occupancy is just not reasonable. So stacking those incomes is probably the only way most restaurants will be able to open back up and survive the uh, coming financial crisis uh, that we may see on the horizon. Uh, That being said, um, we're going to jump right into wine because that's going to be what makes everybody feel better in these hard times. Uh, not exactly, but, you know, we're, we're going to try. So today I wanted to take a moment to talk about Muscadet. And when I say Muscadet, uh, some people may be thinking Moscato. Maybe you're not saying it right. Or maybe it's one of the many names of Moscato, because sometimes Moscato has different names. But I'm speaking specifically to Muscadet, which is a region in the Loire, and uh, one of the wines I had the pleasure to try recently. Uh, However, beyond that wine, I also just wanted to take uh, an initial approach and just get out right away that there is a difference between Muscadet and Moscato and and Moscato de Asti, um, and give everybody a little bit of detail on that. So, the first wine that I'm speaking of is Muscadet, which is a region in uh, the western Loire Valley. Um, the wine is made from a, a grape called Melon de Bourgogne, or Melon is kind of just what they call it. Now, if you're into wine, and slightly into wine, if you don't already know this, and you're thinking Melon de Bourgogne, but isn't Bourgogne in Burgundy? Well, Bourgogne is in Burgundy. Uh, originally, this grape, Malone, was grown in Burgundy in the 1300s, and then in the 1600s, they decided that they didn't like the grape as much as they liked Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir, so they took the Malone and they shipped it to Loire. And the reason that they took it to Loire is because in the western Loire, which is where um, the region of uh, Muscadet is, there's a port. And in that port, they had a lot of traders. And the Dutch were doing a lot of different distillations and fortifications of things to help them survive the shipping. So briefly, if you're not familiar with the history of IPA, um, India Pale Ale. So when people think of IPA, they kind of think it's just an overhopped beer. Well, initially, the beer was hopped and the alcohol was increased so the products could survive shipping from the motherland to 
um, Africa and to, to places across the world so it could survive the voyage across the sea. So the increased alcohol content is actually what helped it survive. So what the Dutch were doing in the French ports were they were doing distillation and they were doing fortification of products before they were shipping them overseas. And the uh, distillation that I'm talking about is made with the Malone grapes. So I talked briefly in other podcasts about fortification process, or maybe I did, or if I didn't, I'm sure we'll touch back on it another time. But um, fortification is something that happens when you take a wine like a port um, and you stop the fermentation process by adding a distillate. And generally, the distillate is made from grape must. And the grape must is the crushed leftovers of the grapes. So basically what's happening here is the Dutch are taking the Malone grape from the French, and they're either crushing it and fermenting it and then distilling it, or they're just getting must. I'm not exactly sure what the process was in the 1600s. Unfortunately, I lack that knowledge at this time. But they basically were taking this grape that wasn't highly thought of, and they were just turning it into vodka, basically, and um, and using it for travel and alcohol, fuel, I'm sure, at some points. Uh, but anyways, so Malone is kind of a grape that's a little less thought of. And, and as I've said before, oftentimes when you think of Old World wines, you think of the region specifically that it comes from, and you don't really think of the grape itself. Oftentimes people think Sancerre, and maybe their first inclination isn't Sauvignon Blanc, which we'll kind of touch on the Loire a little bit in this episode as well. But oftentimes when you think of Bordeaux, you're not thinking of the five grapes that go into Bordeaux blends or into the production of Bordeaux. You're just thinking of a red blend, and you're not really getting specific. So Malone is a grape that's not really ever talked about, which I find unfortunate because... For a very long time, Muscadet has been one of my favorite white wines. Um, it's a wine that you might have difficulty finding if you go to the grocery store. Um, and if you can find it, I'd say grab a bottle. Um, generally, it's really inexpensive. I mean, you can find bottles retail for, I would say, under $20 a bottle, and it's a stellar white wine. It's really delicious. Um, it's known for the minerality. Uh, it's known for kind of... Um, a little bit of a, a salinity to it, but it's really nice. So again, the wine is called Muscadet, and the grape is called Malone, or Malone de Bourgogne. So that's one name that may be getting confused with something called uh, Moscato, or Muscat Blanc, uh, Muscat Blanc. So that grape specifically is an aromatic white wine that originated in Greece, so the traditional tasting notes are honeysuckle and mandarin. If the grape is allowed to age long enough that it consumes the natural sugars that are inside the grape. If you harvest it early, there's high residual sugar, which is producing a sweet wine, which I think is today's modern interpretation of Moscato. Moscato is sweet. Well, Moscato is sweet oftentimes, but Moscato is not always sweet. So... There's another grape, or another version, that is a little more interesting. It's called uh, Muscatel de Sutebol, which is a fortified dessert wine from Portugal. So this wine, even though it says Muscatel in the name, is also made with a different interpretation of the Muscat Blanc. It's, it's the same species as Muscat Blanc, but 
it's a Muscat of Alexandria. So the, this grape is just slightly different in certain taste profiles and also kind of the way it looks. It gets a little bit more of an orange hue to it, um, but the tasting notes are generally orange zest, uh, lychee or lychee, peach, honey. It has a little bit more of a sweeter flavor to it, and that's the reason that they fortify that wine or that grape after fermentation and turn it into a dessert wine in Portugal. So obviously in Portugal they have port, which hopefully we know at this point port comes from Portugal, um, but also they have other dessert wines. And, you know, I think if you take a second and realize that most cultures have been around for a really long time and have had an opportunity to experiment with different things, it's very easy to think that there might be other dessert wines in France besides Sauternes. There might be other dessert wines in Portugal besides port, which is the truth. And there's many dessert wines through all different regions of all different wine growing areas and, and not even just wine growing areas. There's there's dessert liqueurs and cordials that come from all over the world. And without getting too far into Pandora's box, just a, a quick note on uh, on uh, Muscatel Jusutubal uh, or uh, Muscat of Alexandria. So then that brings me to Muscata de Asti. So again, it's made with the Muscat Blanc grape, uh, but Muscata de Asti comes from the region of Asti. So that's why it's de Asti, of Asti. So the Asti region is a region in northwestern Italy, in Piedmont, which you might have heard me talk about before. Probably my favorite region. One of the few regions across the world that I've been to at this point. But I decided if I was going to go to Europe and I was going to go to an area that produces wine, I was going to go to Piedmont because I'm a big fan of Nebbiolo, which we've talked about before. But you can't just drink Nebbiolo all day long. And if you can, you're kind of a sadist or a masochist or one of those. And there's something wrong with you because the wine is super powerful. And I love Barolo and I love acid and tannin and I love an alcohol-driven wine. But every now and then it's really nice to have something light and refreshing. Well, you know, you can always have Barbera and you can always have, um, you know, other grapes that grow in the area of Piedmont. But if you're thinking of a nice, light, refreshing wine, you sometimes think of something a little, I don't know, bubbly, a little frizzante. I'm not talking about Prosecco. I'm talking about Moscato de Asti. So again, Moscato grown in Asti, produced in a dessert-style wine. Uh, it is a sparkling wine. Um, I would say it's more frizzante than it is sparkling. Generally, the the uh, bubble concentration is not nearly as high, but it's one of the lowest average ABVs in wine, in almost all winemaking. It averages at about 5.5% alcohol by volume. Generally, it's very aromatic, and I would say that they leave the residual sugar in the bottle to kind of tone down some of the other flavors that, that go on within the wine, but also they don't want to create a... Um, super strong wine. It's designed to be light and refreshing. Again, it's kind of, if you were sitting around all day drinking heavy, tannic, acidic red wines, every now and then it would be really nice to drink something kind of sweet, kind of crisp, and kind of aromatic and bubbly to kind of lighten the stomach, serve as an aperitif, if you will. So just to kind of touch back into Muscadet or, or Melon de Bourgogne, the grape, if you have an opportunity to get a wine from Muscadet, I, I recommend it. Um, 
one of the regions that I recommend, uh, one of the reasons that I recommend it uh, is because it pairs really, really, really well with seafood and cheese. Um, part of the reason that it pairs so well with those is because it's a lean wine. Um, there's always a lot of nice minerality. It's kind of known to have like a little bit of a limey, a limestone kind of shale characteristic to it. The soil that it's grown in has really high minerality. Um, the apple and pear characteristics generally shine through with a little bit of like acid, a little tartness to it. Um, and again, you can normally find them for less than $20. I would say less than $15. If you're in a retail store and you find a Muscadet or a Melon de Bourgogne, it's generally incredibly inexpensive and it's a really delicious wine. And I'm certainly not stacking it up against something like White Burgundy or, you know, stack, stacking it up against something like Vouvray. Um, again, I, I, I say this and I'll say it again. All wines kind of have a purpose and all wines have a role. And I don't think that any one wine is better than the other. I think it just kind of depends on the quality of production and it depends on what mood you're in and what you're eating and what company you're with. If you're with, you know, a group of friends and you're all out and you're having a great time and you're having steaks and you want to drink a really nice bottle of California Merlot, a nice bottle of California Cab, do it. I mean, if that's what you like, that's the right wine for that scenario. That's the right wine for that occasion. Um, but for me, I often really enjoy drinking Muscadet if I have the opportunity to drink it. Most of the time you can find this wine on lists for, on a wine list in a restaurant for under 40 or $50. I saw it on a list recently for $38 a bottle. Really, really affordable wine and uh, really delicious. Now, the downside to it not being uh, restricted or, or really policed in the quality of production is generally the shelf life is one to five years. Now, oftentimes you can get white burgundies uh, that can last for a really long time, or you can get um, Rieslings that are 40 or 50 years old that still drink ridiculous. They're, they're amazing. But generally, uh, Muscadet, Melon de Bourgogne just doesn't really last that long, but it's not designed to. This is a wine that was designed to just go with everyday cuisine. It wasn't a wine that was designed to be, you know, a life-changing experience. Most wines that you find were designed to pair with the cuisine from that region. And that's why you see a lot of famous red wines from Italy. You know, there's a lot of tomatoes that are grown out there, and so they pair red wine with the tomatoes. Um, you know, French wine... Uh, generally has some wines that are a little bit more fruit-driven, a little bit more tobacco, and that's because a lot of the food that they're preparing is quite hearty, um, and it's supposed to go kind of, you know, hand-in-hand. Hand. And so if you were living by the ocean, you would probably want something to pair with fish because that's what you'd be eating the most of. So the wine that I tried recently was um, Pierre Henry uh, Muscadet. So it's a 2016 vintage from the Loire, um, when I tasted the wine, it has a high acid, but it's not crazy high acid. And, and I've said before that I really enjoy acidic wines and I really enjoy wines with acidity. Uh, I enjoy bright style wines. I, I really love that. I like rich, opulent style wines that are kind of fatty and round, but I also really enjoy acid. It's just always been something that I like, but I always eat really rich food. So sometimes acid's not really a bad thing kind of helps me uh, feel refreshed after a few bites. So 
there is supposed to be a little bit of residual sugar in this wine, but I didn't really get it. Um, I looked up some tasting notes online because it's a pretty straightforward wine, and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing anything. Um, some people noted that they tasted a little residual sugar. I didn't really taste any. We've talked about before residual sugar versus sweetness of wine, and, you know, oftentimes there can be sugar left in a wine that doesn't present itself because of the level of acid in the wine, and this is one of those. It's not screaming acid, and it's certainly not a sweet wine by any means. It's, it's very acid-forward. But beyond the acid and beyond the lack of residual sugar, in my opinion, um, there was flint, there was salinity. I got green apple, pear. It was a really nice wine. It was one of those wines you drink, your mouth waters a little bit, and you want to have another sip, or you want to take a bite of food. And so again, the wine would pair incredibly well with cheese and shellfish, but if you can get your hands on a bottle of 2016 Pierre Henry Muscadet, I'd highly recommend it. Um, it's the first time I've tried a Muscadet with more than a couple years age on it. And it's a four-year-old wine. It's not an old wine by any means, and it's certainly still drinking in its prime, but this is a really, really delicious Muscadet at a, at a steal of a price. Um, the list that it was on was $38 a bottle, and I just I, I can't get enough of it. It's a really great wine. I've had a couple glasses. Uh, no more day drinking. Well, at least for this podcast. It's currently 6 p.m., so I'm not going to get in any trouble today. Uh, unfortunately, you won't see my uh, name all over the newspaper tomorrow morning. But anyways, if you can get your hands on a bottle of it, I highly recommend it. So to touch a little bit on the winery itself, uh, the winery is founded uh, by Pierre Henry uh, Gadies. So his fifth generation, um, I can't remember the name, but the name for people that live in the Muscadet. So five generations they've lived in the area. Well, this guy is the grandson of the um, of Michael Gadies, who is this guy that was the first person to really kind of pair with a legendary importer and wine writer. Uh, Frank Shoemaker. So this was about the 1950s, and and it was the first time they ever paired, uh, first time that they ever bottled a wine from uh, Saint Fiacre. So the wine itself before was grown across the entire region, and this was kind of the first single vineyard Muscadet to be produced. Again, at the time they were just making the wine to pair with the food. It wasn't like they were interested in exporting it or representing it across the globe. And so finally in the 1950s, they decided, okay, we're ready. Um, so in the area that they're growing it in, um, it used to be seafloor. So there's a lot of seashells in the soil. Um, most of them are kind of fossilized at this point. There's a lot of granite, a lot of like schist clay soil. So you get, uh, you get a lot of that in the wine. You get that minerality. You kind of get that salinity um, and it shines through really well. So the region itself, St. Fiacre, is 80% of the region is covered in vines. So pretty much this whole area is just known for growing grapes. And there's 30 different wine growers in just this area. It's an area you've probably never heard of. And if you have heard of it, uh, give yourself a pat on the back. I don't know what to tell you. But um, but yeah, 30 wine growers. It's It's quite a lot of wine growers considering the fact that it's not a world-famous growing region. 
So if you have an opportunity to try Muscadet or you say, Chris, I don't know if I'd like Muscadet, I would ask you if you like Sauvignon Blanc or if you like Gewürztraminer. And when I'm referring to those grapes in particular, I'm referring to old world interpretations of those grapes. I would say that some new world Sauvignon Blanc could kind of taste similar. If you were having a, a Sauvignon Blanc with higher minerality than, than like a juicy grapefruit, I would say that you should try it. If you're really a fan of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, I would maybe recommend against it. Of course, it might be a nice bridge for you from New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc into other uh, high acid style wines. So I wanted to step into the Loire Valley, if you will. So the Loire Valley is a famous growing region in France. So the region is made up of five different territories, and each territory is kind of famous for its own thing. Um, some wines you may have heard of and some wines you may not have heard of, but the uh, the regions that I know are wines that I like, um, so those are the ones that I'm comfortable with. So I, you know, tapped into a little bit of information today and looked in the Loire Valley, and I realized that as a region that I've always really enjoyed, I've always really loved Muscadet, I've loved uh, Rosé d'Anjou, I have always thought that I really enjoyed uh, Vouvray, um, but I didn't realize how little I know. Uh, hopefully, if there's any trend or any kind of catchphrase to this podcast, it's just that you really don't know anything. Nobody really knows anything. I mean, the more you know, the more you know that you don't know, uh, I think is a saying that I heard somewhere. I can't remember right now, but... It's always refreshing to take a deep dive into information and refresh yourself on information and find things that you may have forgotten. Um, so right now I'm reading a book uh, called Wine Folly. Uh, it's the Master Guide, um, the Magnum Edition. So just meaning that it's 2019 James Beard Foundation Award winner, a uh, book that's the most recent edition uh, by Madeline Puckett. Um, I didn't buy the book because I feel specifically weak in my foundation of wine, but I bought it because it's never a bad time to go back to the basics and reread some of the first lessons that you've learned. The first wine book I ever got was called the um, Sommelier Prep Course, I think was the name of the book. Um, very creative, I know. Uh, so I actually got the book given to me by one of my sales reps at the time, a really lovely lady that works in Galveston, Texas, uh, works for Republic National Distribution Company. Uh, she's wonderful. Um, and I expressed my interest into the wine industry as a manager at a restaurant at the time, being quite young, and she bought this book for me. And so I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll read it. I never really understood anything about it. And I made it about halfway through the book. You know, I wish I still had the book. I would revisit it and go back through it again. But that book taught me a lot about the core essentials of wine. It taught me about fermentation. It taught me about, you know, Italy. It taught me about France in a, in a kind of overview because there was only so much information that I could have absorbed at one time. And I think one of the important things here is, is that it's the most information that I could absorb at one time. So it never hurts to revisit information and, and look it over again, reread it, because you might be missing things, especially when you get into the realm of 
learning something new or something you don't really have a concept of. So I got this book, Wine Folly, and I'm kind of doing that. Again, I'm rereading through, and and even though I feel pretty confident and I feel pretty comfortable in my ability and my knowledge of the first two chapters doesn't mean that I'm going to skip those two chapters. It's not really a chapter book, but, you know, metaphors. So I'm going to read through this book. I'll let you guys know what I think. Um, So far, so good. Um, But again, I bought this book just to round out my game. It's never a bad idea to take a step back and revisit the basics. And so doing so kind of encouraged me to talk a little bit more about regions as well on this podcast and try to do a little bit more of a deep dive into each of the regions. So that's kind of what today's about. Obviously, it's about Moscato and Muscadet and and Muscatel, but uh, it's also going to be a little bit about the Loire Valley. So if you know much about wine or if you don't really know a lot about wine or if you know a lot about wine and you think of the Loire Valley, sometimes the first thing that I think of is Sancerre and I think of the Chinon. Um, and those are kind of the first things that jump out to me. However, Vouvray is one of my favorite wines from the region, and it's not something that just jumps into my head. And I don't know why, except for the fact that Vouvray is probably less spoken of than Sancerre and Chinon. So when you think of California, you think of Cabernet, and you think of Chardonnay. You don't really think of, I mean, I guess you would think of Pinot Noir, but you don't really think of Merlot, you don't really think of... Sangiovese, like I've said before, which some phenomenal Sangiovese is coming from uh, Southern California. Um, But you don't really spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that all of these regions grow so many different grapes and so many different wines. And so I just wanted to do a little bit of reading today and, and kind of break down the Loire Valley for you into regions. So the Loire Valley is basically a vertical uh, I'm sorry, a horizontal wine-growing region, and it goes in along the river uh, out to the mouth of the ocean. So there's five regions. All of them are, are right next to each other, basically. It's not like um, Burgundy or Beaujolais, where if you go up into a valley, all of these areas are just kind of within each other or stacked on top of each other or anything like that. We'll read this map from left to right. So we'll be reading from Muscadet, which is the furthest west region in the Loire Valley. Uh, uh, Pays de Montez is the name of the region, but Muscadet is a wine that's made a region inside of the uh, Pays de Nantes. So this area is mostly well known for Muscadet. And again, if you're not really into wine, you may not have heard of Muscadet, but to me, this is one of my favorite white wines in the area of, um, of the Loire. So next to that is the area of Anjou. So when I think of Anjou, I think of Rosé d'Anjou. And that's just the first thing that comes to my mind because that's one of the only wines that I've had from the Anjou until today I looked up uh, Sauvigné. So Sauvigné is a white wine that's produced from Chenin Blanc. And when I've heard the name before, I think of Sauvigné Le Bon, which is not from Loire Valley. So it's funny because I've seen these two grapes and seen these two wines, and I never really stopped to think for a second that there's a difference between the two of them because as soon as I saw the name, I just assumed that it was a certain area because, again, 
I need to take a step back and I need to check myself and uh, I need to put my pride in its place and uh, scale back on the arrogance a little bit. So again, the podcast is kind of for, I want this podcast to be a symbiotic thing. I want it to be for you, the listener, um, something that you can either listen to and laugh at me because I'm ignorant, or you can listen and you can learn, or you can just kind of listen to just kill some time. Whatever it is, it's kind of like the wine that you choose to drink. If you choose to listen to my podcast, I appreciate it. If you don't, it's the wine's not for you, and that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with that. But if you're going to be drinking the wine, I want you to enjoy it. So the podcast is is kind of that. It's a, it's a learning lesson for me. It gives me something to talk about. It gives me something to do during these horribly boring times during the uh, quarantine 2020, uh, COVID-19. Um, so uh, you'll hear me talk a lot about needing to grow personally and hopefully Everybody always feels the need to grow personally, and if you don't, I'm kind of envious of you, but also maybe you just aren't looking hard enough. Anyways, back to wine. Not telling anybody how to live their life, just trying to have a conversation with myself, obviously, staring at a wall, talking to a microphone. Some things I think about while I'm podcasting. Anyways, back to Loire Valley. So we've moved from the uh, Pays de Nantes to Anjou. So we've gone from left to right, and now we're in the center. In the center is a very small region called Samour. And when I think of Samour, I think of Cabernet Franc. Uh, it's a neighboring region to the region of Terrain, which has the sub-appellation of Chinon within it. Um, but Samour also grows sparkling wines, which, again, I had no idea of, and I didn't even think that they would or that they grew anything besides Cab Franc. But again, if you don't take time to slow down and think about things, then you're just not going to know anything. So Samoa is kind of the central region of the Loire Valley. To the right of that is Terrain. Terrain is not an incredibly famous region. Um, I would say that Chinon and Vouvray are definitely the flagships of this area. Um, Chinon being a wine that's made from Cabernet Franc and Vouvray being a wine that's made from Chenin Blanc. Vouvray can be produced in a lot of different styles. Chinon is pretty straightforward for the most part. There's some really amazing Chinons, really delicious Chinons with a lot of complexity, but you know what you're getting. It's, uh, there's not a, a dry style or an off dry style. It's not like two different producers of Cabernet from California. Generally the wine's produced in a pretty similar style. If anybody's ever interested in trying Cabernet Franc, I would recommend starting with Samoa or I would recommend starting with Chinon before you get straight into California Cabernet Francs. I feel like oftentimes California Cabernet Francs could be quite vegetal. Um, when I say vegetal, think green vegetables, um, not chives, if anybody's thinking of that. Uh, bell peppers is kind of what I think of when I think of California Cabernet Franc. So anyways, Chinon and Samoa will have a little bit more earthiness to them. They will have some slightly vegetal characteristics, but they're generally a little lighter in style than Cabernet Sauvignon, um, and it's actually one of the parent grapes to Cabernet Sauvignon. So if you've never heard that before, you may be thinking, well, what's a parent grape? Or no way, or maybe you think I'm full of shit. But they say, and when I say they, I just mean all of the articles I've read, um, 
not that anybody has ever told me explicitly, but from all of the information I've gathered throughout my entire career in the service industry and from many other people that I've spoken to and listening to uh, podcasts often and reading books, actually, the first time I heard it was in that book I told you about, the uh, Sommelier Prep Course, which is the uh, first wine book I ever got. It told me this, and I've seen it constantly since then through all literature of wine. Cabernet Sauvignon is a grape that was made by crossing Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc. And if you're thinking that Cabernet Franc must be much bigger and much more powerful, and that's the reason they cut it with a white wine, I would say think about Sauvignon Blanc in the scale of wine production. If you think about Chardonnay and you think about a really classic expression of Chardonnay um, or classic California style Chardonnay, you're thinking about oak and butter and kind of a really big, kind of rich, creamy wine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Chardonnay in itself as a core grape. And Sauvignon Blanc as a base is generally a much more powerful wine. Um, and not to say that the production or the quality of production or the quality of growth doesn't have an effect on that. Obviously, you can make a really lean Sauvignon Blanc or California Sauvignon Blancs are generally much lighter than New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs as far as uh, acid and um, herbaceousness and citrus fruit goes. But anyways, so Cabernet Franc is actually a little bit lighter. And the reason that they blended it with the Sauvignon Blanc is to give, uh, to um, enhance the flavors a little bit, make it a little bit more of a unctual, powerful uh, grape. So Cabernet Franc is really nice, and, and Cabernet Franc's a uh, great wine that's it, relatively inexpensive. Most of the wines from the Loire Valley are, are relatively inexpensive in comparison to a lot of other wines from France. If you think Burgundy and you think Bordeaux, um, there's obviously quite affordable expressions of Burgundies and Bordeaux, but you can get into thousands and thousands of dollars for some of the highest quality Bordeaux and Burgundies, and you don't ever, if ever, see that from the Loire Valley. And not to say that there's not expensive Sancerres, not to say that there's not expensive Vouvray's, but they just really don't get the credit that they deserve, in my opinion. I think Vouvray is probably one of my favorite wines. Domaine Hewitt is, is the first producer that jumps to mind. Um, they're really well-known uh, they've been around for a very long time. Uh, one of the best expressions of uh, Vouvray. So, Terrain, besides growing Vouvray and Chinon, uh, also grows Sauvignon Blanc. And so, recently, uh, I went to the... Um, there's a little liquor store in... Or a group of liquor stores in San Francisco called Healthy Spirits. And uh, I'd driven past it a bunch of times, and I saw this sign, you know, um, number one liquor store in the Bay Area, or number one liquor store in San Francisco or something like that. And I always drive down uh, Castro Street. And so, uh, no, I don't drive down Castro Street for that reason. But I drive down Castro Street to get home. So I'm driving down Castro Street. I drive past this place quite, an, quite a lot. And one day, finally, I have a little bit of time to kill. And so I pull over and I go in. And I'm kind of taken in awe. Uh, I step in the door and I look up. And probably about 20 feet into the air are just shelves that are completely stocked with wine. And again, the podcast is a lot about wine, 
a little about everything else, but the spirit selection, obviously, here I go sounding ignorant again, a place called Healthy Spirits has a healthy selection of spirits. The digestifs and the and the liqueurs and the vodkas and the gins and there's so many things that I saw that I've seen before, but I never knew where to get. Um, and there's a lot of things that you can't find at most places that they have. Um, and so I walk in and I see one of my favorite producers for beer that makes sours. They're Jester King in Austin, uh, really, really great producer of sour style beers, kind of has a, a little bit of a cult following, not the cult following that Prisoner Wine Company has, but you know, a cult following of really avid um, sour beer drinkers. So I walk in and I want to just get some inexpensive wines uh, at a reasonable price. And I go to the shelves and, you know, they have some really great red burgundies and some really awesome Rieslings and a lot of great wines. But I open the refrigerator and I see terrain, Sauvignon Blanc. And so it just says Sauvignon Blanc because it's not being named after the region. We've kind of touched on this before where when a wine in the old world is grown in a certain region, it's named after the region. It's not always true, especially not nowadays. So on the bottle, it says Sauvignon Blanc, and underneath that, it says Terrain. So it's infrequent that you see a wine from the old world that has the name of the grape on it before the name of the region. So I picked up the bottle of wine. And I'm thinking, okay, it's from Terrain, it's from Loire, it's going to be similar to Sancerre. And it's similar to Sancerre, it's not quite the same, but really inexpensive bottle of Sauvignon Blanc that's really delicious. High in minerality, high in acidity, really, really fun wine to have. Um, so if you go to the store, um, Healthy Spirits San Francisco, or you go to any convenience store, well, maybe not a convenience store, but you go to the, to the grocery store and you see a bottle of Terrain, or you see a bottle of Sancerre, or you see a bottle of Puy Fumé, and you think that you like Sauvignon Blanc, give those a try. They're really delicious and generally not ridiculously expensive. So after Terrain, the furthest east region that there is is the Centre Loire. So the most famous production in this area is Sancerre and Puy Fumé. Um, Sauvignon Blanc grape is what makes these wines. So most people know Sancerre. I would say Sancerre is probably the most prominent interpretation of Sauvignon Blanc from France, um, unless anybody's into Entre-du-Mer, which I think is a little less frequent. Uh, but anyways, Sancerre is, is probably the most well-known. Um, Sancerre is generally served by the glass at almost every restaurant that you go to nowadays, uh, especially if you're here in San Francisco. Obviously, we're very close to wine country, so most places have a pretty substantial wine list. So we like to carry wine from all across the world, and we also like to have different styles of wines. I talked briefly before in a different podcast about some restaurants not carrying Malbec by the glass, and, and I stand by that to an extent that I feel oftentimes... Restaurants will carry two interpretations of Sauvignon Blanc and three interpretations of Chardonnay and three interpretations of Cabernet or, or something along those lines. And sometimes I don't necessarily think that it's essential. I don't really think that it's necessary. Um, I think for your clientele and for your food, I think that's what the list should really be based off of. Uh, I feel like people are often pressured that, oh, if I have a Chardonnay, and I have an oaky buttery style Chardonnay, I have to have 
a Chardonnay that's not as oaky and buttery. And myself as a consumer, when I go to the restaurant, I really appreciate that you have that wine. But if you had a pretty affordable bottle of Chardonnay that was different stylistically, I would probably just buy the bottle of Chardonnay if it's not going to break the bank, that is. And so you're talking about I was going to come in and I was probably going to drink, you know, a $20 glass of um, white burgundy. But you're saying, hey, I have this really great white burgundy for $60 or not even a white burgundy, an unoaked Chardonnay from California or a Chardonnay that doesn't go through a lot of malolactic fermentation. And I'll probably buy that. I'll probably spend twice or three times as much as I was initially going to spend. And I won't mind. But you know, maybe I'm a little bit of an outlier to uh, some of the consumers and clientele uh, out there. But that being said, if you go to a restaurant and you don't see a wine by the glass on the list that you like, ask for advice or ask if you can try some things. And that's kind of a slippery slope in itself. I would say that it's always a good idea to try some things. And I would say that you should ask the server for their recommendation uh, or you should have two wines picked out. Um, and the reason that I say that is because oftentimes in the service industry, we can be quite busy. And if we have to take a moment to sit and go over every single wine with you by the glass, it may take time away from other tables, which we'll have to make up with those tables later on, which will take time away from you. So being prepared to order quickly or knowing a general idea of what you might like or being willing to take somebody's recommendation for something and move forward through the dining experience is always greatly appreciated. Um, not required. Obviously, we're here to serve. That's our job. Uh, if you want to take your time, that's fine. But it's always a little bit more helpful if you kind of have an idea of what you like. I like Muscadet, or this guy on the podcast that doesn't know what he's talking about told me to try Muscadet. So, you know... Do you have anything kind of like Muscadet? Now, I'm going to put that responsibility back on you because, again, Muscadet is not an incredibly famous producing region. So I would say try something like a Gewurztraminer or a Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but look over the list. You never know. Um, some restaurants still carry Muscadets, and, again, you can get a great bottle of wine for under $40. And back to the slippery, slippery slope that there is with trying wines is... When you're willing to try a wine, I would say try two to three wines. If you try any more than that, again, it's it's kind of time-consuming. It's it's frowned upon. I wouldn't say that it's wrong. Obviously, if you don't have a wine that you like, then that's different. But it's not Baskin-Robbins. You don't need to try every wine by the glass. If you've never had wine before, then maybe that's how you should start the conversation. Um and also, maybe the first time that you try wine shouldn't be at a restaurant unless you're willing to just enjoy that glass of wine. Don't order a glass of wine that you're not going to like. Um, if you want to try something new, it's great. Try something new. But if it's really horrible or really disgusting, then I would say that's worthy of sending it back. But if you just don't really like it, see if your partner or the person you're with or one of your friends wants to drink it. Obviously not now. We're in a little bit of a world pandemic. Don't share glasses. Don't share masks. Never share needles. That's one thing that should always be said. But, sorry, I got dark really fast. Anyways, um, back to the wine. So always feel free to try wines. Always feel free to ask for samples of wines. Uh, always ask for recommendations. Highly recommend it. Um, 
and you can find some really great gems out there. You know, generally people in the service industry, we have a lovely opportunity to try a lot of these wines and we have an opportunity to try quite a few wines. And if we're going to recommend something for you, it's probably something that we really enjoyed. Um, it's not very often that I recommend something to somebody that I don't like. Um, there's not often something that I don't like as far as wine goes. Again, a stylistic approach, you have to kind of uh, see the wine and in the quality of production and not necessarily your preference. But without getting too geeky, um, that pretty much sums it up for Loire Valley. So you've got Pays de Nantes, known for Muscadet. You've got Anjou, known for Savonet and uh, Rosé d'Anjou. You've got Samour, known for their Cabernet Francs. You've got Terrain, known for Vouvray, inexpensive Sauvignon Blancs, and Chinon. And you've got Central Loire, known for Sancerre and Puy Fume. Um, one last little note on Puy Fume. Um, if you're in a restaurant uh, or anywhere and you're looking for a bottle of Puy Fume, please know that there is a difference between Puy Fume and Puy Fuisse. So Puy Fume is a Sauvignon Blanc-based wine from the Loire Valley. Puy Fuisse is a Chardonnay-based wine from Burgundy. So quite different stylistically, generally quite a different price point as well. Um, so if for some reason either restaurant or, or store has a bottle and you just ask for a bottle and you just take it to the checkout or you just order it and don't even consider... Um, maybe something important to uh, pay attention to the difference between Puy Fume and Puy Fuse. So I'm uh, kind of exhausted talking about wine. Now I'm ready to just go drink it or drink a beer. Maybe that would be more refreshing at this point. I've had a few glasses of wine. But one final thought, if you will, besides not sharing masks or glasses. Um, it's Education. I think that oftentimes we find ourselves in life feeling the need to stimulate ourselves. And what I mean by that is uh, go online, go on Facebook, go on Instagram, uh, listen to a podcast, hopefully is one of the first things that jumps out to you. Listen to Reluctant Psalm podcast. That, that should be the, the first thing that comes out when you, you know, want to listen to something. Um, but... I think that reading is something that's kind of done less and less frequently. It's something that I have not been the best about either uh, through my life. There's been plenty of times when I've bought a book. I have quite a few books that I've never read or I've read a chapter of or I've read half of or I've gotten three quarters of the way through it. A little bit of separation anxiety. If I really enjoy a book, I'll get all the way up to the end and then I just won't finish it. I just don't want it to be over. Um, but reading. Uh, again, I already have a job. I'm already psalm. I already know a lot about wine. I already have a lot of wine. I already know what I want to buy. I already know how much it costs. I already know how much I'm willing to spend. I already know stylistically what I'm going to enjoy. I already know what I'm going to have with my food. Uh, but I'm still sitting here buying books and learning and touching back on the basics and rounding out my game because I think without doing that, it's really hard to be the best. And I don't think I'll be the best. I don't think I'm going to be the master of wine in two years. Actually, it's not possible. But 
if I do become a master of wine or if I become a master psalm or something somewhere down the road, which there's so many more questions before I even get to that point that I need to answer, I never think that I'm going to be the best because, again, subjectivity. Um, and if you ever think that you're the best and you think you've made it to the top, there's no reason to get better. There's no reason to grow. There's no reason to become more than you are. And if you're not learning, you're not living. So take a second every day and try to learn something that you haven't learned or read something that you've never read or just try to go back to the basics of whatever you're interested in or whatever your hobby is and just read a little bit about the basics. I mean, if there's any big cork dorks out there or anybody that's really into wine and you're listening to this podcast, some episodes probably just seem like refresher courses to you, but maybe that's not the worst thing. You know, maybe it's not the worst thing to hear somebody else talk about it and and consume that information in a different way besides just reading it off of a page or just watching it on a TV or just watching it in a in an ad or, you know, watching Psalm on Netflix or watching Uncorked or watching Rotten Grapes. Consuming information beyond the extent of a screen, I think, is really important. And even if you're reading a book on Kindle, I still think that you're reading a book, and I think that that's really great. And I'm certainly not trying to take away from podcasts, because podcasts are great too, because it's a single sensory thing. You're not feeling the podcast. I mean, hopefully you're feeling the podcast, but you're not physically feeling the podcast. You're not smelling the podcast. Thankfully, you're not here, you know, quarantine, no need to shower. No, I'm just kidding. Um, You're not tasting the podcast. Hopefully you're tasting the wine and you're loving the wine and you're smelling the wine. But you're listening to the podcast, and when you're reading, you're looking at the page, and you're reading it with your eyes, and you're consuming that information and with one sense, and I think sometimes that allows it to be more easily absorbed. Um, you could watch a show, but are you going to remember everything that they talked about, everything that they said? What if that show has a commercial break? It's just going to break your attention, intentions, it's going to break your attention span. So, you know take 30 minutes a day to read. That's what I'm going to try to do. Uh, It's what I've tried to do since the beginning of quarantine, which obviously means that it hasn't been done throughout quarantine. Um, But it's something that I'm trying to get better at. Uh, Even if it's a book that you've read, read through it again. I mean, just relearn, you know, grow, never stop growing. Just like the grapevines, never stop growing. Anyways, lame, cheesy, Uh, I'm going to sign off. Talk to you guys in a few days and uh, stay safe out there. Bye.